someone with superhuman faith, check their pulse, because it's either really fast because they're lying through their teeth, or it's not there. Abraham is a man of faith, uh, albeit not perfect faith, because he steps out and trusts God. But let's go back just a little bit to the story of Babel. Now, uh, just can I have a show of hands? Who's heard the story of Babel before? It's, it's a good story, isn't it? Uh, we all know about it. It's a, it's, it's a good Sunday school story. It's the kind of thing that you could easily teach and say, well, you know what? God doesn't like people living in cities or towers. Um, you know what the horrible thing is? I'm going to have to just speak for a little bit now because my sermon hasn't downloaded. <laughs> so I'm going to make it all up for you. Um, here we find, uh, as I said earlier, this is probably Moses writing to the Israelites as they've come out of the land of Egypt. Uh, they've seen God work for them. They have seen God work for them. They have seen God save them. They have seen who he is. But, but the thing that they need most in the whole world is to know who God is. See, they don't, they don't know all that much about God. In fact, one of, the, one of the excuses that Moses had when he spoke to God, and I love the fact that Moses fought with God about this, is what will I say to them when they say to me, which God sent you? And God gives him an answer. And, and what Moses is doing here is speaking to us and saying, I want to explain to you all what it, or who it is that we are following. Who it is that has rescued you. And he's told them the story of God in creation. And if you read your, your bulletin, you'll see that it's a story of grace. It's a story of God rescuing his people. And now he's come and he says, I want to I tell you the reason we know our God. If you look at Genesis, it starts with creation. Then we have the fall where mankind decides that we want better than God. All of the things in this world that we think will make us happy and we can't see the blessing that we've got. Nothing's changed, has it? And the story there is of how sin just takes root in humanity and progressively gets worse and worse and worse. And not even a reset button with old Noah works because what you find almost no sooner as Noah is on dry ground, he plants a vineyard, he gets drunk and, and yeah, sin just grows again and again and again. And then we come to almost the climax of the issue here in Genesis chapter 11, at the Tower of Babel. Now the Tower of Babel is, uh, it's an interesting story because so often all we think is, it's, uh, what's the big deal? They, they made some bricks, they built a tower, God came down and said, meh, ha ha ha. And then God's got that really, uh, by the way, I love God's sense of humor. Because God's not being serious when he says they can do anything they want to if they do this. God is God, God's laughing at them. God is laughing at humanity. Their offense, says uh, chapter 11, verse 4, is that they want 
to make a name for themselves. They say this will make us famous and this will keep us from being scattered all over the world. We will do this and we will define our own trajectory, our own agenda for life. They think that by doing this, they can control the gods or, or God. They think that they can become strong and powerful by exercising control over the deity. And it's not that they could possibly reach God. There's no way that a tower can reach God because it's not as simple as God's up there and we're down here. In fact, I love the fact that while they are building this tower, God comes down and looks at it. You see, Genesis tells a story of God saying, let us make humanity in our image. And he makes us like him, people able to relate to him and to each other, people who can exercise uh, authority over this world. That, that's one of the roles. That's, that's kind of the main role that we've been given is to represent God to his creation. God says, I make you in my image. In, in the old days, uh, emperors used to, to make statues of themselves and set it all over their territories so that when, when you went to the public square, you'd know, oh, yes, this place is run by that person. In fact, uh, I believe still in some places, in, in uh, the ex-communist places, you can still go and find statues of Lenin. And I think Ukraine just recently, they pulled the statue down or, or something like that. And it was there so that people would go and say, ah, yes, we belong to them. And, and God made humanity so that, so that we would be like his statues throughout the world, his representatives. The problem is at Babel is that mankind doesn't see themselves as made in God's image. They say we will remake God in the image of sinful man. We will define who God is. And if you flick over to Romans uh, chapter 1, you'll see that the, the, this trend just keeps going stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. Romans uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 21. Uh, we won't read all of it. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused and they claimed to be wise and they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. And so God abandoned them to whatever their shameful things their hearts desired and they did violent degrading things, things with each other's bodies and they traded the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who's worthy of eternal praise. Amen. And God abandoned them over to their shameful desires and uh, even the woman turned against the natural way to have sex with each other and indulged with sex with each other. Sorry against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged with sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other and men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved and they thought it foolish to acknowledge God and he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things that should never be done. And their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, envy, greed, uh, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. They disobey 
disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They have no mercy. They know God's justice requires those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. And where does it start? We don't know who God is. This is what Babel is all about. The reason we chase after other gods is because we don't really know who God is. In those days, uh, particularly on the plains where where there weren't very many rocks, they would build uh, with bricks and with mortar. Um, Bricks and mortar was very, very expensive. We tend to think of when you build a city so that people can live in it, but more likely the, the cities in ancient Mesopotamia were, um, they were administrative complexes. So you'd build uh, you know, all the places for the granaries and the places for the administrators to go, and you'd build a temple. And in ancient Mesopotamia, what you do if you're building a nice big temple as part of your city so that everyone would go to the city temple, you'd build a tower. Now, in ancient Mesopotamia, your tower, we're not thinking like Rapunzel's tower. We're not thinking a nice square skyscraper. We're probably thinking a ziggurat. Not a cigarette, a ziggurat. Uh, does anyone know what a ziggurat looks like? You all know what a ziggurat looks like because it looks a little bit like a pyramid. In fact, it is a pyramid. Um, <laughs> maybe up to 60 meters uh, in length at the base. Now, these ziggurats would go very high, um, but the point of the ziggurat is to reach into the sky. Unlike the pyramids, it's just filled in. It's like a a big pile of dirt, and then what they would do is they'd make bricks, and then they would clad it with bricks. Now, the point of the ziggurat uh, is, it's for the gods. It's dedicated to a particular god, uh, probably the city's uh, patron god that they, they thought existed. And at the very top of the ziggurat, this, this is not a temple, at the top of the ziggurat you'd find a room. And in the room you'd find a bed and you'd find a table with some food on it. Because obviously what you want is your god to be in a good mood when he gets down to the temple. Because he's got to come through the gate of heavens down to the temple. And so what you do, it's a long hard journey. So you give him some food and a place to rest. It's a halfway stop, you know, like that new BP on the, on the freeway, <laughs> except it was for God. It's a, it's, a, it's a pit stop at the gate of heaven. I, I do find it quite ironic that while they are building this halfway stop for God, who obviously finds it very tiring to come up and down, God's sitting at the bottom watching them building it going, <laughs> these guys are nuts. <laughs> God doesn't need a rest house. They're building a rest house because they look and they think, what must God be like when I go for a long journey? I need a rest. And, and I know if, if I want Graham to be nice to me, then, then it's much nicer if he's not cranky. So I'll, I'll try and make him never. never. Well, I won't build a cigarette for you. God doesn't upset their plans because they're too powerful. He doesn't upset their plans because their engineering is beyond repute and maybe, just maybe, they'll reach him. God upsets their plans because he wants better for humanity. 
God made us to have a relationship with him, which means knowing who he is. I mean, if, if you know anything about the gods of the ancient Near East and what they thought of God, well, Romans chapter 1 is very similar kind of things. The way that you look at the worst of humanity and you apply that to the gods. Who would want to have a relationship with the gods of the ancient Near East? They were capricious. They might bless or they might curse. Who knew? They might be angry or they might be kind. Who knew? They needed looking after. They obviously were weak because they needed some food. They might demand you do the most horrible things. They might just give up on you. Who knew? You might go to the temple and offer sacrifices and and all of a sudden your crops do wonderfully while your neighbor goes and offers exactly the same sacrifices and his crops fail and then obviously he's offered to the wrong God or he's done something wrong in his life and, and he just doesn't know what he's done wrong. In fact, there's a poem or a story written from that age where the guy's basically going through every single God that he can think of and saying, for whatever it is, I've got no idea what I've done wrong. Whatever it is, I'm sorry. Please stop hurting me. That's what you get because they don't know who God is. A, God's not the kind of person who you can manipulate. But B, you're not ever going to know how to please God if you don't know who he is. Just think of the people around you. If, if you don't know the person next to you, you don't know how to make them smile. Has anyone ever watched The Matrix? The Matrix is a story of Reggie shaking his head. Oh. I don't like the movies. They, they, ugh, they mess with my mind. But it's a story of humans living in a make-believe world and they're they're basically batteries for computers. And the computers are like, they're like the gods. They control reality for the humans. But the humans are just there as sustenance to feed off. And a lot of people, a lot of us, slip into thinking of God like that. God needs us. God needs us to do for him because we know that we need stuff. And so God must be the same. And and if God needs something, well, then you can control him, can't you? God needs a rest because he's tired. We'll build him a ziggurat. We'll build a tower to heaven and then he'll look after us because he has to, because he owes us. This is where God steps down and scatters them and, and, he, and it's kind of like, you guys have no idea who I am. And he comes and, and their big thing is we want to make a name for ourselves, we want to be famous, we want to control our destiny. And instead in chapter 12 verse 1 we find God coming to a nobody. Abraham, while he's still in Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, and the family moves to Haran. They get stuck there. Abraham keeps moving forward. God keeps calling him onwards. Uh, and only in verse 7-ish when he gets to Canaan does God finally say to him, right, stop here. This is the land that I'm going to give to you. But in contrast to the people of Babel who thought we can control God, we can make our name famous, we can control our destiny, God comes to Abraham, small well, I don't know, he might be tall, he's probably tall, but, you know, 
Small in the eyes of the world, Abraham. Abraham. A man who is not powerful. A man who has a little bit of wealth, but, but is actually quite worthless compared to the empires of the day. There's not a man with the means to build a city. In fact, this is not a man with the, with the means to build a nation at all. He, he is married to a woman who cannot have kids. At Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves, but here God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to choose. Abraham, will you abandon this land, this place where you grew up, where, where you know everyone, where you have some sense of respect from the people around you? Will you abandon this for the one that I'm going to show you? And by the way, I'm not telling you where it is until you get there. Abraham, will you choose to abandon the family that you have in favor of an impossible family that I will give you? And he kind of does that. Eventually does. Abraham, will you abandon the blessing and inheritance of your family, of your, of your background, for the inheritance which I will give you? Abraham, will you trust that I can deliver what I promise you? Abraham's not asked to give up really good stuff for something that's second best. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, what you've got is fourth best, at best. Will you give it up for me? Because what I want to give you is so much more than you can imagine. You can't make a name for yourself. I will make a name for you. And I will use you and I will bless you. In the ancient world, um, many family groups would have their gods. In, in fact, we, we see this uh, would have been the custom of Abraham's family uh, because later on we, we see that his family that he leaves behind still have their gods and they get stolen and so it's messy. Read Genesis. God's people are messy. Uh, many of the gods were associated with, with either the place where you lived or the family that you came from. And often your inheritance would include the family gods. And you'd probably have to look after your dead relatives as well. And God comes and says, Abraham, will you leave it all behind? Will you leave every spiritual crutch, all those things that you have relied on to give your life meaning and worth, will you leave it behind? Will you realize and rest in my grace and in my strength? Because quite frankly, you don't got enough. I wonder what are the security blankets the old habits of life and thinking that God would call you and I to abandon. We have them all, don't we? And sometimes, like Abraham, we're a bit slow to let go of them. And we drag him along until it becomes impossible. We're going to see uh, in a while, uh, he takes Lot along with him and eventually there's, two, there's not enough space for them and they have to separate. What are the security blankets that God would call you to leave behind? The things that you think are valuable, but God says, actually, I made you for so much more. In place of the security of the known, and the known feels comfortable, God offers Abraham 
a, a, a threefold blessing. He says, I will bless you, Abraham. I will protect you. I will favor you. I will give you safety. I will give you prosperity. He says, uh, I will make you a blessing. Uh, in other words, those who are for you will be, well, I will be for them. And God says, finally, Abraham, I will bless everyone in this world, all the nations of the world, through you. I mean, why does God come and choose Abraham? Sorry, does anyone, just hands up if you're 75 or older. 75 or older. One, two, three, four, five, six. About this stage that God says, Abraham, right, let's going to start a nation. Get up and leave your safety. No, retirement village. You're going to a place that you don't know about. He lived for a while, so he was quite sprightly and his wife was apparently very good looking because she was about that age as well. And, and as we'll see, everywhere they go, they run into trouble. But why choose old, childless Abraham? No offense to you who are over 75. But why would God choose someone like that? It's like saying uh, Fremantle Dockers have chosen their new recruit. It's a 74-year-old. It's an, well, it might be an improvement. <laughs> I think it is for exactly that reason that everyone looks and goes, what is wrong with God? What is, you, you're mad man, and God says, ha ha. I delight in taking the messed up, the broken, and the weak and showing my strength. We will make a name for ourselves. We will be famous, God says, you want famous? Look in the gutters. That's who I'm going to start a nation with. God made us to be in relationship with him, something that sin ruined. God will restore it. His ultimate goal is to have us back in relationship with him. But Genesis isn't primarily about God solving the problem of sin. There's hints of it and there's, and there's promises of it, but the big issue in Genesis is not the problem of sin. That comes with Jesus. God solves sin with Jesus. Before God can solve sin, he has to solve the problem of Babel. Before God solves sin, he has to make sure that we know him. If I am to have a relationship with God, it's going to help a lot if I know who God is. If I want to follow God and be like God and, and set my eyes on God, it's really difficult if I've got no idea what God's like. It's impossible at the best of times, but how, how do I even know whether God is gracious if God doesn't turn around and say, by the way, I'm gracious. Between Babel and Calvary where Jesus died, God is on a mission of revelation. God is not like us. He's not like our false gods. He's not like the things that we think uh, give our lives ultimate importance. Uh, some of you might not know, uh, my first degree was in maths and computer science. But in maths, sometimes if you're proving a theory, uh, you have to first prove a lemma. Now, a lemma is a theory that doesn't actually answer the question you want to answer, but you can't answer the question you want to answer unless this is true. 
And this is what God is doing. He's saying the problem is sin messed up over here. Genesis chapter 3. Here's the solution. But in order for you to understand Jesus, in order for you to run to Jesus, in order for you to want Jesus and know who he is and what he's done, you have to know who I am. And that is what the Old Testament is primarily all about. And, and there's pointers to, to salvation and there's hints towards it. But the main thing is, do you know who I am? And this is all about grace. God's undeserved kindness. I mean, we live, if we trust Jesus, in the full morning sunshine of God's grace. Jesus died to save us. Nothing we can do can make him love us less. Nothing we can do can snatch us out of his hands. Nothing anyone else can do. Uh, No weapon formed against us can prevail. But the revelation agenda, the lemma, is like God's grace dawning over the darkness of sinful humanity. I mean, to live in a world without revelation is horrible. You know what it's like to stumble around in the dark? Isn't it, isn't it painful? You think you're going in the right direction and then you walk into a wall. That's what it was like. That's what Babel was like. Am I pleasing God? Am I offending God? What sort of personality does God have? And then God comes and says, I will show you what my character is. I will show you what my heart is. I will show you my attributes. And I'm going to start with Abraham. And through you, Abraham, the whole world will will come to know who I am. Isaiah chapter 60, 1 to 3. Through you, they will know that I am the Lord. Romans chapter 3 says, uh, through the people of Israel come the messages of God, the, the oracles of God. Greater than the privilege of living forever. And, and isn't it so easy for us Christians to get stuck on the become a Christian and live forever? Beachside mansions. Wonderful. But let's not get stuck there. Because greater than the privilege of living forever is that of knowing God. Because that is what we were made for. Abraham was nothing special. But when God gave him the chance to know him, he takes it. And it's not an easy journey. The land's already occupied. Abraham himself doesn't become, see himself as a great nation. But somehow, as Paul says in Romans 4, somehow Abraham knew enough to trust God that he would keep his word. And, and God shows his character to the world through Abraham and his family, regardless of Abraham and his family. When he does good and when he represents God's well, people go, wow, what a God you serve. And when they do badly, they go, wow, your God's strong because he doesn't like it when you act like that. Abraham messed up a lot, as did his following family, but God's grace remained because God was in their business of showing who he is. And by the way, God is gracious. We come to, the, to Sinai, the giving of the law. And what is God doing there? 
He's saying, this is the kind of person I am. This is, this is the kind of ethics. This is how I live. This is how I want you to live because this is who I am. And then we come, jump forward to the judges and, and some of them are good and some of them are bad and, and, but there is no doubt that it is God who is powerful. And we, we come a little bit further and we, we come to the kings, King David. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, God is showing us that God is king, that he is in ruler over everything. And, and, and the kings, the good kings represent God well and then the bad kings come and then God says, well, fine, I'll use the foreign kings to show how strong I am. Cyrus and Darius and all of those. The point of Genesis through to Calvary is that grace is amazing and that God is amazing. All of us, like everyone else, are still caught up in sin. We're still destined to die for rebelling against God. And the same paganism that drove the people of Babel to build a ziggurat or a tower to try and control God still drives us to be self-controlled and self oh, self-controlled still drives us to be self-absorbed and to look for life apart from God to so look for empty wells and leaky cisterns but God loved us and loves us too much to leave us blindly groping in the dark trying to imagine who he is God hasn't just given us hints about himself. God has come and said, this is who I am. And more, God has acted to save us. Not because of us. We are exactly like Abraham. We are totally undeserving. If you think that you have the capacity to build a name for yourself, if you think that people should look at you and go, wow, what a great Christian, you are a Tower of Babel person. God works with the Abrahams or the Abrams, and he works with the Pauls. The great apostle who wrote most of the New Testament and says to Timothy, um, let me list all the people that won't be in the kingdom of God. Uh, (laughs) By the way, I'm the chief of sinners. That's who God works with. God promised to bless all the nations through Abraham, and the biggest blessing is Jesus. But you know, Jesus did more than just die and rise to life to save us. That is the biggest grace of God. Uh, That is the one we need to constantly be looking back to. But Jesus also is the one who most clearly shows us who God is. The whole of the Old Testament is about God saying, this is who I am. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will know me. In fact, there's a wonderful quote in the Old Testament where it speaks of the day when Jesus returns and says, in that day no one will say to their neighbor, know the Lord because they will. But until then we need to know God and Jesus comes and says, I am the God who loves you. I'm the God who chooses the weak, like Abraham. I am the God who is strong to cast out your enemy in front of you. I am the God who hates sin. I am the God who is humble. I am the God who is gentle. I am the God who is good. I am the God who hangs out with the dregs of society and upsets those who think that they can control God by their piousness and their righteousness. I am that God. Jesus is God become man to show us what God is like and to show us also what God wants for us. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, asks us a really simple question which is at once 
also profound and one that we need to keep asking ourselves. Can we make a name for ourselves? Or do we realize that we can't? Do we want out of the barrenness of sin? Or is the cost of abandoning the things we hold on to for support just too much? Abraham trusted God that he had better in store for him because Abraham was, had nothing. He was wise enough to know that his animals weren't worth much in the long run. God wants better for us, and he is someone worth following. His character is shown in how he acted, and most clearly in how he acted in his son. And it starts with grace. Right here in Genesis 12, it starts with grace. God says, you can't know me, but I want you to know me. You can't make a name for yourself, but I want to give you the best name possible, the name of friend of God, child of God, chosen of God. I want the best for you, and the best is me. And God says, the ball's in your court, Abraham. On the night that Jesus died, or the night before he died, he shared a meal with, with his disciples and he did some incredible things. He washed their feet. Eric's looking askance going, he's not going to wash my feet, is he? He washed his disciples' feet. And they all thought this is weird and this is wrong and you're meant to be the master and God says, actually, you've got it completely wrong. That's not the kind of God that I am. I'm the God who loves you so much that I will do whatever it takes for you to be clean. Throughout his ministry, Jesus had healed the sick. He'd proclaimed freedom to those who were in prison by sin and by sickness and by shame. Jesus had had fantastic parties with the kind of people that you and I wouldn't be seen dead with. Jesus came and said, I want to use those who are sick not those who don't think they need a doctor. And then he came to his friends and he said, you've met me. You know who I am and you know who God is, but there's still an issue. You're not good enough.
didn't actually say that. But I'm sure looking back they realized it and passed around the bread. And, and he said to them, this is my body which is broken for you. A little bit before that, he had said to them, you know the way to where I am going. And one of his disciples, astute as ever, said, we have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. You see, God's grace just grows from strength to strength. Isn't it wonderful to know the kind of God that he is? And wouldn't it be horrible to know that God is so good and loving and kind and gracious and then to realize that nothing we can do can make us good enough for him? Isn't it horrible? Have you ever had that experience where you realize that actually you're just ineligible? The thing you want most of all in the whole wide world? Maybe as growing up you went to a roller coaster and and there's that stupid sign that says you have to be this tall and you're not tall enough. And you go, ah. And you still don't make it. Jesus says, you're not tall enough. Take my body. I've done the grace of showing you who I am. And now I'm going to go and just super abundant grace you. I'm going to take your punishment in your place. This is my body broken for you. And then afterwards, he took a cup bigger than this one and he passed it around and he said this is my blood poured out for you and he said remember me do this to remember me you see not only as has God shown us who he is not only do we not have to blindly grope around and figure out who God is, but God has shown himself to be the God who loves us enough to do whatever it takes to rescue us. God is the God who comes to you who are worthless. And I'm sorry if I'm putting you down this morning, but you're bad. God says, fantastic. That's the material I work best with. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. For they come and they drink. 